Good to see everyone here. I hope you're eager to get into the Word of God and see what uh, He has to say. So with that being said, I welcome you to open up your Bibles, follow along with me in Acts chapter 8. Today we are in Acts chapter 8. Now there's a lot of history that's behind the scenes here. I'm not going to rehearse everything that we've, we've been through one, I'm not capable of doing that. Two, it'll take a bit of time. But, you know, Jesus, our Savior, has already came. He's died. He's been buried. He's been raised. He's ascended. He's actually commissioned the believers to carry the gospel forth. And the gospel is going forth. And people are being saved. But not everyone's happy. We ran into this back in chapter 6. They, they grabbed a man by the name of Stephen, and they drum up charges against Stephen, and they, they execute Stephen. And as Stephen is executed, it says that a great persecution, this is in in verse 1, chapter 8, verse 1, a great persecution rose against the church, against those believers. They were persecuted greatly. The believers are scattered. And these scattered believers go through Samaria, among other regions that we read of here. They're they're going through the regions of Judea, Samaria, they all left... um, as we said here. So, they're scattered, they go through Samaria, and as they go, they're proclaiming the gospel. I think some translations read preaching the gospel. That kind of gives us a formal uh, feel, but it's actually just proclaiming. Some translations and commentators refer to it as gossiping. They're just gossiping about the gospel. Everywhere they go, they're just kind of just talking about it. So, they're in Samaria, gossiping about the gospel, and the Lord saves those, some of those in Samaria. Now there's, you know, Samaria, again, there's a lot of history between the people of Israel and the people of Samaria. When, when the kingdom split, Todd went over this last week, but when the kingdom split, that northern kingdom began to be referred to as Samaria, with Samaria being their capital city. They had their own god, their own king, who was not of the Davidic line. They had their own priest. They made these golden calves. They just had all their own worship. Then when the Lord judges the northern kingdom, Samaria, takes her captive to Assyria, some remain in the land. The Assyrians repopulate the land, and so they intermarry. So they're half-breeds by the Jewish standards. They're they're these half-breeds. They have their own worship, their own idols, their own temple, their own priest, their own king. They, it was just, and they think in Jerusalem that they have it all right. That they're mistaken. You know, the answer is right in front of them as, as the apostles are proclaiming the gospel of Jesus Christ, but they think a bit highly of themselves. So here comes Philip. Here comes these scattered believers. They're proclaiming, they're gossiping about the gospel down in Samaria. Some are being saved. One in particular we read about is a man named Simon. We caught this last week. Simon is a magician by trade. There was really nothing in last week's message or nothing in the passage we read last week that gave any indication that Simon was not saved. But what a difference a week makes. What a difference the next verse makes, the next passage. But Simon was, he was well thought of. We pick up in verse 10. Of, it says, they all paid attention to him being Simon. 
from the least to the greatest, saying, This man is the power of God that is called great. Verse 11, And they paid attention to him, because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. So he was prominent. Prominent. I would, I would venture to say he was wealthy. So he would have easily made that Forbes 500 list or whatever it is. He would have been lifestyles of the rich and famous, right? He was, he was rich, yet he was spiritually bankrupt. Rich, yet spiritually bankrupt. That's what I would title this message. So let's see what this passage says, how it kind of just stretches on past what we read last week. We'll begin in verse 14. So when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John, who came down and prayed for them, that they might receive the Holy Spirit. For he had not yet fallen on any of them, but they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. Then they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money, saying, Give me this power also, so that anyone on whom I lay my hands may receive the Holy Spirit. But Peter said to him, May your silver perish with you, because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither lot, you have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. Repent therefore of this wickedness of yours, and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. And Simon answered, Pray for me to the Lord that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. Now when they testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. We'll just stop there for tonight. Look, well, there's, without question, there's some things in this passage that are, uh, can give you a little bit of anxiety if you're the one who has to, to teach it. But it is important, and this is where I think we must step back, it is important to, to get the context. Not necessarily the context of the passage, the context of the book. You know, the overall message to understand the overall theme of the book. You know, God doesn't write the way Brian writes. You know, God writes things, he stays on point. He doesn't waste words, right? There's no confusion, there's no contradiction, and this is the Word of God. So let's see what he, let's try to get back to the point of this book. So if we come here to chapter 8, and we attempt to understand this passage, apart from understanding the overall context of the book of Acts, we'll end up in error. Or worse yet, you could end up in heresy. Because this passage is going to contain the coming of the Spirit in a very unique way. So here is a classic example of where proof texting can get you into trouble. Just pulling one verse, one little section out of Scripture and trying to make it applicable to the rest of Scripture. So how can we make sure we're not proof texting? That needs to be a question we ask ourselves. Well, one way we could do it is making sure we understand what the letter was written about, the context of the letter, understanding the purpose of the letter, the purpose of Acts. So the book of Acts is not a template 
that we use to gauge how a church should operate. It's not that. The book of Acts is not about the church. It's not about the apostles. The church is in Acts, but Acts is not about the church. Peter really puts his finger on it. If you want to flip over to Acts 17, sorry, Acts 11, verse 17. Acts 11, verse 17, this is after the Lord has, has saved Cornelius and his family and his friends and his relatives. Peter's recounting this story in Acts 11. Peter says this in Acts eleven seventeen. 17. If then God gave the same gift to them, Gentiles, as he gave to us when we believed in the Lord Jesus Christ, who was I that I could stand in God's way? So what we're reading about when we get to Cornelius, really, is that God is moving. God is moving. This book, and, and there's more passages I'm going to flip to, but this book is an account. According to Luke, it is an orderly account on how God gets His gospel to the ends of the earth. That's what the book is about. God is moving. And so Peter's saying, who am I to stand in God's way? We can go to Acts 9. Go back to Acts 9. This is, about, this is about Paul. Acts 9 verse 15. God says this. He, being Paul, is a chosen instrument of mine. Paul is a tool of God's. A chosen instrument of mine to carry out my name before the Gentiles and kings and children of Israel. So what does the book of, of Acts describe for us? And to me, the answer is obvious. The book of Acts is a trustworthy account written by Luke narrating how God is getting His gospel to the ends of the earth. That's what we see. So keep that in mind as the premise of the book. God is the focal point. The apostles are the instruments. God is the focal point. Apostles are the instruments. Big picture, God is getting his gospel to the ends of the earth. And everything's really going to be kind of sifted through that filter. So this passage here, before us in Acts, by the way, is one that the Pentecostals misuse and abuse, among others. But this is where they look to and they point to what we call here a second blessing or the baptism of the Spirit. Something along those lines. So what charismatics do with this passage is they see this passage as normal, normative. They see this passage as prescriptive. This is what we should look for. This is what we should be. Not descriptive, it's prescriptive. This is what we should do. We see these passages as descriptive. Again, not prescriptive. We recognize these events as, as trustworthy. We recognize these events as unique movements where God is publicly manifesting evidence that this movement we see, Samarians being saved, is a work of God. So without question, something very unique occurs here in this passage. So how are we to, to understand it? Again, we need to ask ourselves, is this unique coming of the Spirit normative? Is this what we see? 
And just a casual reading through the book of Acts really indicates that it's not. This is not the norm, what we see here. This is not to mention 1,900 years of church history where this isn't even on the radar. And just, just to kind of as a disclaimer on where I'm going here, I believe that these Samaritan believers here, when the Spirit falls on these believers, they begin to speak in tongues. Right, I base that all on verse 18. Because you may have said, well, I read, when you read that passage earlier, I didn't see no mention of tongues. There was no language concerning tongues. But I do think it's reasonable to assume it's implied because of verse 18. It says that Simon saw that the Spirit was given. Simon saw something. In the other passages where the Spirit was given in this way, uh, we read of tongues. You know, Acts 2, Acts 8, Acts 10, Acts 19. So I do think it's within reason to assume that these believers spoke in tongues when they received the Holy Spirit. That's what Simon saw. But again, the Charismatics will say that this is prescriptive and this is the way it should be. Excuse me. All right, so the Holy Spirit here. Let's just, just kind of back up and look at the book of Acts because I'm, I'm telling you that this is not the normative. This is not the, the pattern. This is abnormal. So let's look back. In Acts 2, you don't have to turn there, but you'll be familiar with this. In Acts 2, the Holy Spirit came upon the 120 in the upper room. And shortly thereafter, 3,000 were saved at the preaching of the gospel through the apostle Peter. So the 3,000 in Acts 2, do they speak in tongues? No. Although Peter says in Acts 2 that they had received the Holy Spirit. What about when we move to Acts 4? The 5,000 that are saved there, do, do we read of them speaking in tongues? No. So beginning in Acts 1, or really in Acts 2, all the way through Acts 28, the gospel's going forth, People are being saved, and yet we only read about tongues in three places. Now, I'm saying it's implied here, but we read about it in three places. That's the only time the Greek word glossia or something along those lines is even mentioned. Acts 2, Acts 10, and Acts 19. So what should that indicate to us? If it's only mentioned three times, it should, mention, it should indicate that that's not normative. It's not the norm. It's not the pattern, and clearly it's not the pattern, with only three mentions. Let's go on down this a bit. All right, so one time in Acts 2, there's about 120 in that upper room, possibly. So 120 we have there in Acts 2. In Acts 10, when Cornelius and, and those in his household begin to speak in tongues, it says that it's just his friends and relatives his close friends and relatives. In Acts 19, when they began to speak in tongues, it says specifically there was 12 men in all. Three times throughout the whole book of Acts, and it's not in large groups. It's in very, very small pockets. Roughly 120 in the upper room, the friends and relatives of Cornelius, and 12 men in Acts 19. You see, this is, to me, is strengthening the argument that these supernatural signs we see here are not the normative. It's not the pattern. It's not normal. 
So to base your theology on a slither, a tiny slither of believers, is the definition of missing the forest for the trees. Okay, so if this is not the pattern, if this is not normal, then what do these passages teach us? Trying to lay the foundation, guys, before we get into it. In Acts 2, we have the Spirit coming upon those in the upper room. Those are Jews in Jerusalem, right? This is God. This is God kind of authenticating that this is a work of God. In Acts 2, in the upper room, He comes upon the Jews in Jerusalem. In Acts 8, when the Spirit comes upon these believers, these are Samaritans, half-Jews. Half-Jews, half-Samaritans. When we get to Acts 10, we see the Spirit coming upon Gentiles. In the case of Cornelius, right? But not just Gentile Gentiles. Gentiles who actually are worshiping Yahweh. God-fearing Gentiles. That's what Cornelius is. Then when we get to Acts 19, we have Gentile Gentiles, for lack of better words. These are complete pagans in Acts 19. In Acts 19, they're in Ephesus worshiping the goddess Artemis. So we go from Jews to half-Jews to Gentiles who worship the God of Israel to Gentile heathens. And every time we see that transition, we see that this spirit falling on them as a way maybe of God authenticating that this is a work of God. God is moving. As Peter says, who am I? Who, who am I to get in his way? And he's authenticating that this is his hand. So remember that filter that I'm trying to filter this through, that God is getting his gospel to the ends of the earth. That's what we're seeing here. We see it here. We'll, con we'll continue to see it throughout the book of Acts. Which, by the way, is a mirror. It's a carbon copy of what Jesus said in Acts 1. Before he ascended, he said, You will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in Judea and in Samaria and to the ends of the earth. And we see this transition taking place. This is what we're reading in Acts 8. So that foundation being laid, that this is not what we should look for. We, don't, we should be praying for the second blessing or this spirit, the Holy baptism of the Spirit. We're not looking for that. This is unique. Verse 14. Now when the apostles at Jerusalem heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them Peter and John. So, remember that Samaria, if we go back in Luke, the people of Samaria, of, of Samaria did not receive Jesus. They rejected Him. They didn't receive Him. But here, it says they received the Word of God. So, they didn't receive Him. Now they do. Same author, Luke, same word. Previously they didn't receive them, now they do. And it says here that when they heard that Samaria had received the word of God, they sent to them. They, being the apostles, sent to them, being the Samaritans, Peter and John. That word sent is active, if you care to know, which means that Peter and John are the ones being sent. They're passive in this. I say that because Peter's not the Pope. Right? Peter's not some authority. 
He is the one being sent. He's not, you know, they collectively concluded that it was wise to visit the Samaritans' believers. And you may ask, why? Why, why would they deem it important? Well, why? The integrity of the gospel. Earlier, the Samaritans did not receive Jesus. And now, all of a sudden, they're receiving Jesus. So, was the, was the message watered down? Maybe? Was, it, was the message watered down or weakened to make it palatable to the Samaritans? So, I do think that Peter and the apostles had great confidence in Philip. Because, according to Acts 6, Philip is said to be a man of good reputation, full of the Spirit, and full of wisdom. So the apostles doing a follow-up behind Philip may be the case. It, it wouldn't, you know, no, no big deal. But there may be another conclusion. We look up in verse 1. At, at, the, at the persecution that's coming, it says in verse 1, And they were all scattered throughout the regions of Judea, of Judea and Samaria except the apostles. So all the believers were scattered. And many of them went through into Samaria. Samaria. And then we read in verse 4, those who were scattered went about preaching the word. They went about proclaiming and gossiping about the gospel. So this proclaiming of the good news of Jesus Christ, evangelizing the surrounding region, was carried out by believers. We can say ordinary believers. So maybe their decision to send Peter and John stemmed from their concern about the accuracy of the message. And that may, say, that may come across as a little unfair to say about believers, but Scripture is replete with accounts of Christians getting things wrong. Hence, most of the New Testament, 1 Corinthians, 2 Corinthians, Galatians, right? You get the picture. In another instance that we'll read here in Acts, in Acts 18, there's a man named Apollos who is eloquent. He's a great speaker and he knows he knows. A good bit about the gospel. But it said that, that um, Priscilla and Aquila had to pull him aside and show him the way of God more accurately. So it seems like Apollo still needed instruction. So what's, what, what, is it really hard to conclude that Peter and John may have wanted to go down there just to make sure that there wasn't something that was off just a bit? And it's also important to remember as we're going through this, that the first New Testament book hasn't even been written. Not even one. They needed the apostles' eyewitness account to rebuke any discrepancy. Today we have the written word of God to verify the message of, that we're hearing. They didn't. They didn't have that. So the, as I'm, you got this creative imagination going on as you're trying to picture all this and do you think any of the apostles, any, just one of them, as they're sitting there thought, well, it doesn't really matter if they're wrong about a few things. At least they preach Jesus. But no, no, they, they took truth seriously. The conclusion is this. They're going to Samaria, to Samaria to verify the message delivered was the correct gospel. Because there is no other gospel. That's why they're going. And for the record, there's no language, no language that implies that the apostles corrected any errors in the message they, that was delivered. You don't see them going in there and just having to straighten things out. It seems as though 
The gospel presented to them was the true gospel, and this gospel was received, and it was a work of God. And God is showing them this in spades. Let's move to verses 15 and 16. So it talks about they, being Peter and John, were sent by the apostles, and Peter and John came down and prayed for them that they might receive the Holy Spirit, for he had not yet fallen on any of them. But they had only been baptized in the name of the Lord Jesus. It says, for he had not yet fallen on any of them. The he there, no question, is the Holy Spirit. He is God. The Holy Spirit is a person, the third person in the Godhead, right? It, it is a he. It is a person. It's not a thing. It's not an inanimate object like some translations translate as it. For it has not yet fallen like it's just some power. It's, no, it's not a person. I just... I, Thought I'd throw that out there, but this translated here is he, and I, I, I much prefer that. For he had not yet fallen into them, but they had only been baptized in the Lord Jesus Christ. And then, when the apostles got there, they laid their hands on them, and they received the Holy Spirit. Now, when Simon saw that the Spirit was given through the laying on of the apostles' hands, he offered them money. So, the laying on of hands that we see here that the apostles are are doing this is a way of identifying with them. You, this is pictured often as they would offer up a, a sin offering in the temple way back in like Leviticus and, and some of those early books. It was a way of kind of transferring basically their sin to the animal, identifying with the animal so that when the animal was sacrificed, it's paying for their sins. So it was a way of identification. It was a sign of confirmation. All these are things that are pictured through this laying on of hands. But whatever you do, do not picture a Benny Hinn crusade. And he goes around and just lays his hands on people and they're falling out and waving his jacket around and everybody falls but the cameraman and those who are catching those who, you know, you know it's, it's always puzzled me. Look, those crusades that you see pictured on TV are exactly, exactly what Simon the Magician was wanting to do. That's exactly what he's wanting to do. So, it says here that he saw that the laying on of hands, that by the laying on of hands, the Spirit was given. So again, he saw something. Something happened. And in my, you know, by, you may guess, my guess would be that they began to speak in tongues. And I think that's a fair assumption. But he saw this, and he offered them money. There's an English word that we use today, not often, that is called simony. Has anybody ever heard of simony? Well, simony is the act of selling church offices and roles. That word is, is derived from this particular passage. It was, it was really popular in the Middle Ages, you know, in the Dark Ages, the, the Catholic Church, some of the priests and bishops and even the popes, I think some of those offices were bought. And it was and it later on became to be referred to as simony. They were doing exactly what Simon the Magician wanted to do, to buy that position, to buy that power. A term we use today came directly from the pages of Scripture. Now, as we see Simon offering to buy this power, his background as a magician can't be overlooked. Magicians would profit not only from their show and showmanship, uh, these trade secrets would often be bought and sold as another stream of revenue. 
Paul, when he's at Ephesus in Acts 19, verse 18, we read there that many of those who were now believers came confessing and divulging their practices. And a number of those who had practiced magic arts brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all. And they counted the value of them and found it to be 50,000 pieces of silver. Right? So they would, they would take these magic arts, like trade secrets, and they would sell them or they would put them on, into books and sell the books. And people would buy these books. It was just a, it was a, a stream of employment. So not only was the show a means of gain or a means of employment for Simon, uh, the trading of these tricks were monetized as well. And Simon, being a very well-established and prominent magician in Samaria, he's now been pushed aside. We, we see that. Uh, you know, uh, what Philip is doing, you, you know, is what's troubling him so much. What Philip is doing is why he was following Philip in verse 13. He followed Philip trying to pick up on how he's doing this sleight of hand. You couple that with what Peter and John are doing when Peter and John show up, and, and Simon doesn't see this as salvation. Simon sees this as an opportunity. So in keeping with his background, he offers to buy this trade secret. Seeing the spirit as an it, seeing the spirit as impersonal is what he does. And even if he did understand the, the spirit to be a person, which I doubt he did, the person would have to have been inferior to him. Because his desire is for the Holy Spirit to operate at his beck and call, right? No, and Simon shows no desire to have the Spirit himself. He doesn't desire the Spirit. He only desires to monetize the Spirit. He only desires to have the power. And he really makes this, the Holy Spirit slave to him. That it'll do what he, instead of him being slave to the Spirit, the Spirit's going to be slave to Simon. So that whomever I lay my hands on, they may receive the Holy Spirit. You, you see where this is going. So while we're here, I did think it's, it's, it's interesting to just connect a few dots as we're coming through this book. Um, we do read in Acts 1, Judas. We're familiar with Judas, but he is mentioned. It's just a little light mention of Judas back in Acts 1. In Acts 5, we read about Ananias and Sapphira. And here in Acts 8, we read about Simon the Magician. Do we see some common thread throughout all that. Of course we do. The love of money. The love of money. Greed. Greed is, is here right in front of us. It takes us to 1 Timothy 6. 1 Timothy 6. Paul writes this, But those who desire to be rich fall into temptation, into a snare, into many senseless and harmful desires that plunge people into ruin and destruction. For the love of money is the root of all kinds of evil. It is through this craving that some have wandered away from the faith and pierced themselves with many pangs. Sad, sad commentary. John Phillips says this, quote, Judas decided the Savior had a market value. Simon Magus decided the Spirit had a market value. End quote. Pretty interesting connection. But it's not really completely unlike the charlatans today who enriched themselves by selling the, quote, spirit, unquote. Right. They're selling it. You know, just give me some money, 
touch the TV, whatever. I'll send you a prayer cloth. I'll send you this holy water. Or what. It's just they're just selling these, the spirit in that case. So we move on in verse 20. But Peter, in his discernment, said to him, May your silver perish with you because you thought you could obtain the gift of God with money. You have neither part nor lot in this matter, for your heart is not right before God. That last phrase, your heart is not right before God, shows us Simon's desire for this power. It wasn't so that he could win the world to Christ. Just give me this power so that anyone I touch... You know, the, the Holy Spirit would fall on them, and I'd just go around and I'll win the world for Christ. That would be admirable. Confused, but admirable nonetheless. No, this is plainly a business venture. This is what Simon sees. His heart is in the exact same place it was before Philip came to Samaria. This man is unconverted, which is exactly why Peter's going to tell him in verse 22. To repent. He's unconverted. And the gift that he's trying to purchase is not the Spirit, by the way. The gift he's trying to purchase is the apostolic gift. That power, being able to lay on hands. That's what he wants. Buying the office of an apostle. Which has served this purpose and doesn't exist today. Verse 22. Repent. Repent. So Peter's strong rebuke is followed by this loving plea to repent. Repent. Repent, therefore, of this wickedness of yours and pray to the Lord that if possible, the intent of your heart may be forgiven you. For I see that you are in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. Repent. Repent. I don't know, I just... I can feel Peter sees the strong public rebuke is followed by this plea to repent. Look, and he tells him here to quit being so bitter. I see that you're in the gall of bitterness and in the bond of iniquity. So he's bitter, but he's bitter about what? That, well, the, the answer is pretty obvious. Simon was the one they had paid attention to. We read that earlier up in verse 10 and 11. Verse 10 says, they all paid attention to him from the least to the greatest. This man is a power of God that is called great. Verse 11, and they paid attention to him, Simon, because for a long time he had amazed them with his magic. That is until, verse 6, the crowds of one accord paid attention to what was being said by Philip when they heard and saw the signs that he did. And Simon is wanting his throne back. He's wanting his crown back. I'm, they're paying attention to you. Now nobody's paying attention to me. How am I going to eat like this? But he's, he's just bitter. And, and, and that word gall there, gall was what they offered to Jesus as he hung on the cross, right? Gall is a sedative. It's an opioid. It was kind of like a, it would just kind of sedate you and kind of numb the pain. It can be, some people said it's bitter, but that, and I get that, maybe bitter to the taste, but it doesn't flow well when he says that, I see that you are in the bitter of bitterness, that may, maybe that's, the case, but maybe the implication is this. Simon is really sedated by bitterness. He's completely numb to how wicked his heart truly is. Oblivious to the dangers that he's actually flirting with. 
when he makes these statements and makes these demands. Give me this power also. That's an imperative. He's oblivious to what he's doing. And Peter's telling him to repent, to change your mind. Simon, change your mind on who you are and who Jesus Christ is. Verse 24, Simon answered, Pray for me that the Lord, pray for me to the Lord, that nothing of what you have said may come upon me. You really see Peter here. I'm sorry, you really see Simon here. He doesn't pray for himself. He asks Peter to pray for him. Some read this as maybe uh, just kind of a mockery. Hey, yeah, yeah, pray. Just pray for me that nothing will happen. Just, just really brushing off Peter, brushing off that rebuke. And just pray that nothing will come. Nothing what you said will come upon me. No real, uh, no real desire, no real heartfelt repentance. No real clinging to the feet of Peter saying, please, please pray for me. I don't know what to do. None of that. Well, then we move on in verse 25. Now, when they had testified and spoken the word of the Lord, they returned to Jerusalem, preaching the gospel to many villages of the Samaritans. So they, 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 they remained there. It seems like they began, they, they remained teaching and speaking to the, the word of the Lord. They were, and then they returned to Jerusalem. So the question may be asked is, who's the they? Is it going to be the apostles alone? Is Peter and John going back to Jerusalem? Or did they drag Philip with them? We don't know. But we can venture to guess that maybe Philip went back with them because we read in the very next passage that we're going to read that, that Philip is going to go to Samaria, which is south of Jerusalem. And it says, you know, uh, rise and go toward the south to the road that goes down from Jerusalem to Gaza. So likely he did accompany the apostles back into Jerusalem and maybe give a report, a more detailed report of what happened here in Samaria. Now, I mentioned earlier that the word, the English derivative of the word simony that we use is used to purchase uh, church roles, church positions, power, things along those lines. But it, it really can be expanded just a bit to say anytime you're, you're trying to do things to enrich yourself. And it doesn't have to be uh, people buying you know, a, a position, a bishop or a pope, as, the, as was common in the uh, Dark Ages in the Catholic Church. It could be actually people that stand behind a pulpit that are doing it for personal gain. That could, that could be a form of simony. They're doing it to not necessarily enrich themselves, but to promote themselves. Maybe it's with a book. Maybe it's a Christian band who thinks that an easy way to, to get noticed and move into pop music is to do it through Christian music first. You know, it's a little maybe an easier segue in. All those ways, all those where you're actually using the things of God to enrich yourself can be a form of of simony. I just pray that, that you know, so don't, don't look at the, the pastor or, or this man as a standalone case and not examine your heart in this case. You know, God has given us much and we can do a lot of things to kind of try to enrich and better ourselves and maybe promote ourselves in a way that we shouldn't. I pray that we, we understand exactly what we see Peter saying here that, that this is a gift you know that, that salvation is a gift of God. 
you, you can't buy it. Money, there, there is not enough money here to buy the gift of God. And even if there was, it would cost you everything you have. You should give all you have to Christ. Be more like the Samaritans who, or be more like the, the people who are scattered, who are going about in Samaria, gossiping about the gospel, telling everyone that we come in contact with about the good news of Jesus Christ, watching what the Lord can do. It's just amazing what the Lord can do. But I do pray that, that the foundation I laid early on in this sermon was one that you got that we, do, we are not to look at this passage as normative. This is a, a, a unique, a unique transitional, trans, you know, a, a unique transitional movement of God that we see in two Acts eight, Acts ten, Acts nineteen. Okay, would please stand.